there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two and have big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months, plus lots of other stuff. That's grantwall.com. Really appreciate your support. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. I'm a bit sick of the VAR chat. I know we'll do a bit of it, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not here for all the VAR complaining. We, we, we can get to that in a bit, though. Hope you've had a good Labor Day weekend. We're coming out on Tuesday as a result. Uh, let's dive in. Man United 3, Arsenal 1. And I watched this game at Smithfield, my local bar here in New York City. Uh, just so many United fans who are going to be insufferable if they continue to win games, which they should do, by the way, after spending as much money as they have in the transfer market. Arsenal takes its first lost points of the season. They're still one point up in the league, but Man United has now won four in a row after those two disastrous opening losses in the league. How good is Arsenal? How good is United? So as it relates to United, I'll, I'll start there because I do think that these are incredibly impressive results that they've put together. If you think of how they started the season, that massive hammering at Brentford, all the conversations about the Glazers, all the conversations about failed transfers, about players that don't belong there anymore, they found a way. And they found a way to win games. And if you looked at this period of fixtures, you'd look at playing Liverpool, playing Arsenal in, in, in a span of four games and thinking wow, this could be four losses from six, if not worse, to start the season, and they've won four in a row. But I do think, to your point about perhaps United fans getting insufferable, I do think that this should sort of be taken in stride. It is very good results. There are bits of the performances where Eric Ten Hag seems to have figured some things out, but I don't think that Manchester United are winning in the way that Eric Ten Hag would want them to. And while that doesn't necessarily mean you can't get excited about the fact that they're winning anyway, but he still has a lot of implementation to do, a lot of changing of the system, changing of their way of playing. They're playing effectively right now to gain results. Getting Marcus Rashford out on the break is a very smart tactic. I just don't know if that's exactly how Eric Ten Hag would want to be playing. So they are sort of progressively developing a style while also achieving results. And that is very good, but I don't think all of a sudden you start to think, well, they're only uh, three points off Arsenal now. They're in striking distance of uh, Manchester City and Spurs. Therefore, they're one of the teams that are in contention. Taken in stride. These are good results. These are good building blocks. It's very good to see Anthony score on his debut because you want to see a new signing that was spent that much money on come through the door and start performing well. But I don't necessarily think this is the dawn of a new day for Manchester United. I think that's a good point. We have too small a sample size, and I'd like to see United get some results against big six teams on the road, which we haven't really seen yet. So plenty of games to come. Anthony getting a goal in his first game, the goal that puts United ahead to start, I thought was just huge for him uh, and for the club. You know, this is a guy who's played for Eric Ten Hag before, knows the system. So maybe I wasn't that surprised that he started, even though I was a little bit. And then clearly sort of an, a prearranged situation where he was going to come off pretty early in the second half and Ronaldo would come on. Ronaldo just clearly wants to score. Uh, I guess that's a good thing. Didn't in the end, but his role on the team in any big game, I don't think is as a starter. And I think it's good to have this role for him very much outlined and, and coinciding with their recent success. 
And Christian Erickson continues to be not just one of the best stories in the sport, but one of the best players in the sport too, which is such a cool thing to see. Yeah, him and Bruno Fernandes have done really well to create chances together and play those through balls that send Marcus Rashford in behind. How much has Marcus Rashford needed that sort of service to get him into space? It's been years now that he's been waiting for, you know, I mean, Bruno did some of that stuff. It changes a lot when Ronaldo comes into the team, but it's kind of wild when you think back how much Marcus Rashford's form dipped in the last 18 months. Uh, which weird because it was kind of coincided with him becoming the trademarked best human in the world. Uh, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't working for him. And now, voila, he's in a system where it seems to make sense. And there are a couple of passers that can find his runs and can hit those kind of 40-yard balls into space. And he can get on the end of him and really cause opposition defenses problems. He right now, if you're kind of game planning against Manchester United, might be the threat that you're most concerned with. I do want to pivot to Arsenal, though, because you did ask me, what, how do we leave this game feeling about Arsenal? I thought they played reasonably well. I thought they controlled periods of the game, but you just sort of, you, you see the spaces that you can be attacked against them. They were very high in that game against Manchester United. They were basically defending on the halfway line. There's one goal that gets created because they didn't execute the press well enough on the halfway line. There are moments where they're going to have to work things out. They have a pair of young center backs in Saliba and Gabriel. Gabriel's made a couple of, of, of mistakes in recent games that have cost them goals, and that's the consistency that they have to find. It's still a very young team, and on this day... They probably were a bit unlucky with the first goal just because uh, or w- with the fact that a goal of theirs didn't stand because of VAR, one of the major controversial decisions of the weekend. I thought that was a foul watching that in real time. I thought it was the, uh, the correct decision to overturn that on VAR. But if all of a sudden you start away from home, 1-0 away at Manchester United, that's a completely different game. So I think Arsenal, a lot of good building blocks. I still think that they're a top-level contender. We'll see how consistent they can be over the course of the season. But uh, I, I do think this is kind of a sobering reality check that this is still a very young team with a lot of work and credibility to gain. Yeah, I, I think Arsenal is a team that will get more games to see, but I feel like they're a, they're better than last season. I feel like they're a top-four team. I don't necessarily think they are a contender to win the league. And we'll find out more in the coming weeks. I mean, they've got a pretty favorable opening schedule here. They don't get Spurs until October 1st. That's at home. And yet, you know, you look at some of the stuff that was being talked about. Oh, you know, Saliba's the new Virgil van Dijk. Let's pump the brakes a little bit and and see what's really the case there. Part of that's due to Virgil van Dijk not being great so far this season. And he wasn't again over the weekend, by the way, which we'll talk about a little bit later here. But I look at Man United as a top four team. I don't look at them as a title contender either, but I keep saying this and Man City still is dropping points occasionally. Uh, and you know, as good as Erling Holland has been um, right now, Arsenal is still with the loss one point ahead of the rest of the pack. Uh, so who, so who would it, you have? So who would you have as those title contenders then? If, if United and Arsenal are in title contenders, is it just city Still Liverpool in that conversation and Spurs? I'll tell you right now, I feel like Spurs has as good or better chance to be in the top two than Liverpool. And I've been been thinking this basically since the start of the season. And the more you see Liverpool play, the more you see them drop points. They dropped two points again this weekend against Everton, the crosstown rival, and thought it was a pretty even game. Um, I, I just, I'm concerned about Liverpool. I, I feel like... Uh, it's not just Van Dyke not being as good. It's it's several 
players on that team not being as good. It's, um, you know, we haven't seen, had the chance to see as much of, of, of Darwin Nunez yet. It hurts that Tiago's out. Uh, you know, this is just a team that, you know, I, I think has gotten off to a rough start, but you can't continue to drop points and, and think you're going to be a title contender in a league that has Manchester City. Agreed. And I, I agree with you on on the Spurs point as well. Although I do think like, I know it's the Antonio, the Antonio Conte kind of way and system. There's just times where they get outplayed for large stretches and like they don't seem to have that. You know, in Syria, you would look up and Inter won a couple games, 3-0, 4-0. I don't think that this Spurs team is ever really going to blow teams out like that. I just think that uh, unless they find some different way of playing, they establish their base and they get more prolific in the attack. I think a player that can kind of change the way that they look is Richarlison. I thought he played really yeah. well uh, th- this past weekend. This weekend. What, a, what a threat. But And all of a sudden, you're looking at those four front positions and it's rare that Spurs have had this, but you don't know who to pick out of Kulisevsky, Richarlison, Son, and Kane. It might actually be Son, the player, who kind of has to get dropped right now because he hasn't had the best start to the season. But I think Richarlison could potentially add that dynamic that I'm looking for. But I just wish they controlled games more to genuinely be title contenders. Yeah, by the way, I think Son's going to start playing well again. He hasn't so far this season, and look where Spurs is in in the table. So I, I think that's actually something to potentially be encouraged about. Um, about where they are. And and obviously there's going to be a lot of discussion around Champions League, which starts this week. And it's just going to be this nine-week race of six match days in nine weeks because of the compressed schedule. And Antonio Conte does not have a good track record in Champions League. And we'll see if Spurs can compete on two fronts because uh, that's not an easy thing to do. They haven't necessarily done it very well over the years. Um, but if they can, I, I think they're capable of doing that. And just the kind of group, by the way, for Spurs in the Champions League, where you look at it and go, they should get through. Those should be easy games. But Eintracht Frankfurt, Sporting, Marseille, those would be very difficult away games uh, for, for Tottenham to, to get points from. They should get the job done at home. But like you said, it's about balancing things. And it's why they've tried to go out in the transfer market and sign a bit more. They have, you know, cover for two at left wing back in Perisic and Sessegnon. I imagine they'll start to use Matt Doherty more, uh, along with Emerson Royale, a right wing back. Um, they have some depth now, and that certainly helps, but um, I think this is going to be a very difficult period for those teams in the Champions League. And we haven't talked about that with Arsenal either. They're heading into Europa League play, as are Manchester United. So uh, that entire process, I think, kind of changes the view of the league because I think early season, for example, a team like Leeds, who we can get to later, I think they struggled a bit because they've had to play this three-match week. They're playing a ton of games in the Premier League quick and fast. And I think for a team that doesn't have a ton of depth, that could be a bit of an issue. But now the rest of the league gets a bit of advantage now because midweeks are occupied with Champions League and Europa League. And those teams will be playing so many games in such a tight period that perhaps it's the other Premier League teams that could be ready to strike. I'm with you on that. I know you don't want to talk too much about VAR. I get it. And yet, it was a huge talking point in England over the weekend. Chelsea ends up winning 2-1 to one against West Ham. Late West Ham goal chalked off. And you have a minority opinion, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I, I thought that was a foul. <laughs> Uh, on on uh, is it Jared Bowen? I believe on Mendy. I I appear to be the only person who's not a Chelsea fan that holds this view. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think that like again, if it happened in any other area of the field, yes, the ball is gone, and those are generally fifty fifty moments where 
players are allowed to go for the ball if it's sort of a a close contest with him and the goalkeeper. But the ball has gone. Edouard Mendy is lying on the ground, and Jared Bowen kicks him. That's how I that's how I saw the incident. And he can't get out of the way, and you can't kick players. That's against the rules. So I I understood why that decision was given as I was watching it, and I wasn't really watching with social media or anything like that, and like flip on the you know BBC Radio Five Live after the game or anything to get instant reaction. So I'm kind of going about my day thinking, hey, you know, I, I thought that was a foul, and then the next morning it's like major controversy. VAR is the worst. It's awful. It needs to be thrown away. And it's like, wow, okay, I, I didn't I didn't realize that decision. And then there was one in Newcastle Crystal Palace as well. I just think that. Ultimately, you can look at these incidents, and I'm surprised that the media ever like comes to a consensus view. You hear this like, oh, that is definitely not a foul. That is definitely not a foul in the Newcastle goal. That's definitely not a foul. And I feel like if we did like if VAR was decided by like a poll of people watching, do you think the poll would come back a hundred to zero? Would it come back like fifty-eight forty-two? Like I I think what a lot of people view to be consensus. Like, I, I think even the most educated soccer fans can disagree about these decisions. So whenever we're dealing in the area of subjectivity, it's good that they use the video. It's good that the referee goes to the screen. They try and have a discussion about it and come to the best decision. Like, I'm just not going to, it's it's the system itself or referees are bad. Like, they're all doing the best that they can and they're looking at the evidence and making a decision. What more can you possibly ask for? There's a couple things I would say here. One, I thought the goal should have stood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess my question here is why are goalkeepers protected so much more than any other player on the, on the field? I get very frustrated by that. It's very hard to score a goal. I get frustrated when what appear to me to be good goals get chalked off in that t- type of moment in particular for some a situation where I think they're being overly protective of the goalie. They're also keeps coming up in me about like blank blank in England somehow being different than something in the rest of the world. So I am used to contact more contact being allowed in England than in other countries. That's just part of the culture there without fouls being called. And it was part of the directive before the season, the referees were told let more go on. And also, too, I think VAR in England is different than VAR in other countries. And I think when you look at VAR in England, they have been more willing to interfere and change calls than in other countries. And that's caused fans to be upset. You also have a situation with offside, typically in England, where they have the whole telemetry thing that they spent so much money to put in each stadium and can get things down to a fraction of an inch. And they've moved away from that a little bit. And you can tell when they do, it's still not the MLS VAR or MLS is cheap and didn't want to install the telemetry stuff in their stadiums. It's actually been a beneficial thing because offside on VAR isn't as strict in MLS as it is in England. It still isn't. And now I'm curious to see what happens now that Howard Webb has gone to England from North America, where he oversaw VAR and MLS and other competitions. And how will Howard Webb change things in England now that he's just taken over there? I actually like the telemetry thing just because it makes offside inarguable, right? And 
I, for instance, I think of the the Hell is Real Derby in MLS uh, last weekend, where there was a major con- you know there was a major controversy about an offside decision. Pat Noonan went nuts after the game, and I saw there's this guy who's been sort of doing the telemetry on Twitter uh, for MLS decisions, and that one was actually much closer than it appeared. That and and that camera angles deceive us all the time. And there was actually one in the Merseyside Derby where there was a late offside given. And you can kind of look at it with your naked eye and go, I think that's offside, but like it was very obviously offside. So I'm actually a fan of that just because it completely standardizes that decision. You can complain about it. You can say it's against the rules of the game and or the, against the spirit of the rule. Look, we get 100% consistency with that. I'd like to see that applied in other in, in other places. But uh, you're, you're right about that culture thing with, with Howard Webb uh, moving from the U.S. running pro where... They had a sort of more lenient view of VAR. They didn't want to completely intervene on ev- on everything. They let a lot more go uh, than I think you see in other places. And I'll be curious if he takes that culture uh, over to the Premier League into the PGMOL. Also, want to talk about a couple of American U.S. men's national team players, Christian Pulisic and Yunus Musa. And I don't know who you want to take first here. Pulisic is staying at Chelsea. Todd Bowley, the owner, saying, nope, we're not going to loan you out. We're going to keep you here. Pulisic, clearly unhappy. We're told that he wanted to make a loan move, and he's very disappointed. People try and read all this stuff into Pulisic's body language. I saw people posting videos of him uh, after the midweek game, not going to the fans, walking straight to the tunnel. And I guess we're supposed to read that. I'm not a big fan of body language reading, by the way. And... Uh, and then sort of at the other end, you've got Yunus Musa, who has two terrific assists in Valencia's win on Sunday with Greg Berhalter in attendance at the game. And suddenly Greg Berhalter looks like a soothsayer who early on said Yunus Musa is a central midfielder, not a wide player. He's going to play centrally with the U.S. And by the way, he's going to start a lot of games and play a lot of minutes as a teenager. I saw a stat from Jeff Crandall at U.S. Soccer that Musa has already gotten more minutes as a teenager with the U.S. men's national team than I think anybody else uh, as a teenager, which is a really interesting stat. And Eunice Musa, in some ways, uh, could be the breakout player we're now discussing for the U.S. when the World Cup hits and maybe really taking off at club level. Well, I, I think not only is he you know, potentially the breakout player. But I think now we can safely say he is the most important player for the U.S. men's national team at this World Cup. And, and or I, I shouldn't say we can say that. I'm saying that. I'm what? saying yeah, that. Yeah, why? Think, yeah, I, I think that because we saw in, in the summer, Greg Berhalter said that he made a tactical adjustment to have Yunus Musa play deeper, uh, you know, as a result of the fact that Tyler Adams wasn't doing enough of that distribution work as a single holding midfield player. And Musa coming back helps with that build. But I think in that position of the field, it's so important to have a technical player that can handle the ball under pressure, particularly as they play games against teams like England, where just having a bit of the ball is important, against teams like Wales, where their defensive solidity is going to be important. I just think Yunus Musa has that ability to keep possession of the ball, work in tight areas, drive the U.S. forward. I always think that the most important players play in the middle, play in central midfield, and help dictate the game. And I don't think the U.S. has a dictate-the-game sort of player like Musa. I think Luca De La Torre is probably the closest, but I think he does that as a at a bit of a lower level. He hasn't played a ton this year in his move to Spain. I just saw 
the touches that he had in this game against Hitafe for Valencia and playing in very tight areas, the, the assist for, I believe, is Valencia's fourth or fifth. Um, he receives the ball. He's surrounded by three Hitafe players, kind of pops the first touch away from the first defender to create that little space, gets around the corner, plays a through ball and behind the attacker goes and scores. Like those are moments that I think are so important to have in a U.S. midfield. And like you said, Greg Berhalter deserves a ton of credit here because I'm always very wary of when national team coaches decide to play players in positions that they don't play in week in, week out at club level. And I think Valencia, albeit they did bring in a new coach, must have seen Musa playing in that role and thought, why don't we play him there? And the fact that the the national team is dictating that, I think, is a huge credit to Greg Berhalter. I think it's probably one of the biggest recruiting wins that they've ever had, I think we can now say, uh, in terms of, you know, they had... It was England who were in for him, Nigeria who were in for him, and I think Italy as well. Like Those are massive footballing nations that the U.S. was able to get this player off of. And the fact that they've sent him on his way in this position, I think is a huge credit to them. But yeah, I think in this World Cup, he becomes a massively important player because we know he's going to start in that midfield. What's your sense on Pulisic? And like my, my personal feeling is I, I'm not bothered that much as some U.S. fans are that he's going to be with Chelsea just because there's so many games coming up with Chelsea. Champions League games, league games. They're going to be playing every three days, every four days. And, you know, if Pulisic can't earn more playing time in that situation, then that's on him. The only thing that I, I would slightly disagree with you there is I do think that Thomas Tuchel has not exactly been a home for great attacking players furthering their development in his time at Chelsea. I think he's gotten them to be much more stable. They won the Champions League defensively. They don't they're not as leaky as they used to be. They keep very good possession. Those kind of back seven outfield players are very involved, but the three up front are very often left isolated. And I just don't think that Christian Pulisic has been given really that much of a fair shake to really prove himself. Like if he had a regular starting place at another team, I think that's probably a bigger concern for me after the World Cup. Um, I think for the moment, Christian Pulisic rotating in and out, in and out of a team and not playing every week is actually kind of ideal for me because it means you get him to the World Cup fit and healthy. But I do think Christian Pulisic moved to Chelsea as a trendsetter, as someone who is going to break the mold as a high level attacker at a big level club. And I think he has to continue to progress at that. It can't just be, well, he's in the team, he's rotated. He's got to be a star player, I think, if he's really going to be the door opener that he was meant to be as a player who moved to Chelsea. I also just generally think for the player, he seems frustrated to be there. Uh, you mentioned kind of reading the body language. His his father's Instagram and Twitter uh, dealings are out there in the public sphere, and not a ton of it is favorable towards Chelsea. It seems pretty clear that he would like to move to a different club. He didn't get the chance to do so in this window. And I do think for his career to take that next step, the club that comes after the World Cup is a big deal for him. Here's a question for you. I know Chelsea ended up getting three points the other day, but haven't gotten off to a great start this season. How solid is Thomas Tuchel there? I, I don't know because we don't know how the ownership under Todd Bowley really changes things. We don't know if he's going to sack coaches in the same way that Roman Abramovich did. We don't know how much of the transfer dealings that Chelsea did do, they spent a ton of money, was about what Thomas Tuchel handed as a brief to Todd Bowley. Because we can't imagine he, like, you know, Marina Granovskaya, who ran the transfer business at Chelsea, left. Petr Cech, who was the technical director, left. And they were sort of around in a, in a you know, 
counseling role, but they weren't really running things. This was Todd Bowley's show to run. He's the one who's taking the pictures with the new signings. And who is he getting the impetus to go sign players from? Because I can't imagine it would just be, well, I, I want to go sign Wesley Fofana. I'm going to go do that. No, presumably Thomas Tuchel was heavily involved. So maybe Tuchel is more invested and more linked with the ownership there than we might think. So uh, perhaps results can be frustrating. He could go. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he's sort of the long-term project there at Chelsea, that Tuchel, by virtue of having won the Champions League, has real cachet and real credibility with this ownership team. A couple other things I want to talk about here. Uh, Brentford 5 leads to, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but Jesse Marsh sent off for, sounded like haranguing the fourth official. I watched all of this game, and um, I think this is an issue only in the sense that at the same fixture on the biggest game, the last day of the season last year, Leeds got the win they needed at Brentford to stay up under Marsh and did not at all in this game. And I, and I realize scorelines can get out of hand the way that this team plays. And there were some positives for Leeds in that they brought it back a couple of times, got it to 3-2, uh, had a penalty shout that was uh, not granted. In fact, that's when Marsh got sent off. Um, and yet, I, I noticed that after the game, Patrick Bamford, who did get on uh, in the second half, used the word naive to describe Leeds' approach. And I kind of agree with him, but it's also not a great sign. Agreed. And I, I do think that as it relates Leeds... It was it was a difficult end to a, a long week for them where they play three matches in a week. And as much as, you know, Bielsa's tactics and training methods were talked about a lot as putting a strain on the players and it is, they just sort of ran out of gas at the end. They weren't able to keep going. I do think that it's sort of underestimated then on the flip side of it, how difficult Jesse Marsh's system is to execute as well. If you look at Red Bull's Red Bull New York's statistics, over the course of the Jesse Marsh years, and even now, they always lead the league in you know pressing actions, sprinting movements, uh, all, all these things that are a huge toll physically on players. I thought Brendan Aronson, who started every game in the season, Tyler Adams, who started every game of this season, they were kind of started. They were starting to look a little bit ropey there towards the end of the game, where they didn't look like they had their full legs behind them. It's very difficult to play that much early in the season, and I do think as well that. When that system is not executed perfectly, it does leave you vulnerable. There are very easy balls over the top that they found, which, by the way, was the Brentford model against Manchester United as well. They're very good on the break. Very good on the break. Right. And I think they struggle against teams that don't allow them those chances, but Leeds aren't going to be pragmatic and say, well, let's deny Brentford those chances on the break. We're going to play our game. But it leaves huge spaces, which Ivan Tony found a ton. Brian and Bomo found a, a, a ton for Brentford. So... I thought that it was fairly. It was a fairly simple way that Brentford were able to get to five goals, and I do think that Leeds at sometimes sort of have to be more perfect about the way that they execute their system because it leaves them very exposed. I haven't seen if Jesse Marsh and Leeds are filing any sort of uh, appeal on the red card, so we don't have to go through the whole video thing of Jesse saying, "When you get a red card, I was told that you're, you know, soccer or football, you're actually supposed to be out the next game." So I'm expecting him to be out the next game. <laughs> Um, let's talk Milan, Milan, Inter, Milan three, Inter two, Milan Derby, obviously, and a big moment, uh, early in the season here. It's been kind of bunched up a little bit atop Serie A and just, uh, 
a good performance from Milan going down early, but then having the comeback. Yeah, I thought Milan, after they went 1-0 down, must have created seven chances before halftime. There were genuine goal-scoring chances. Samir Handanovic for Inter was very good on the day. And Milan have some really impressive attackers. I'm actually really excited to see how the Italian teams do in the Champions League this term because they haven't really done much of anything uh, in, in the last couple editions of the UEFA Champions League. And I do think it's really important for some of these players to get that Champions League shine in the latter stages of the competition because I think there are a lot of players for Inter and for Milan that deserve a lot more credit than they get. Marcelo Brozovic, for me, is one who scored, I thought, a very clinical opening goal uh, for Inter. I don't think Rafael Leao is as big of a star as he should be, yeah. uh, g- given how well he performed for Milan last year. Scores two goals. The third was brilliant work made uh, the two Inter defenders look absolutely terrible. I think it was Tonali and De Vrij, uh, who are in the way, or was, were supposed to be in the way of Rafa, Rafael Leao, and he clinically finishes. So I do think that Serie A should be on a bigger platform, in, in, in that platform being the Champions League and having those teams studied a bit more. Um, but they just haven't done well enough in European competition. I think this is a big year for them. But as it relates to this Milan derby, it's interesting how stylistically different it looks to the past. Both teams very good at attacking, very good going forward, and it was kind of a very open game, which I don't think is what a lot of pe- a lot of people come to expect with Italian football. But it's for a couple of years now been the case where these are actually really fun derbies and open games, and this was no- certainly one of them. Yeah, if you're somebody who just falls back into the Catanaccio Italian league stereotype, it hasn't been that way for a really long time uh, yeah. in that league, which is a good thing, I think. Um, you mentioned Rafael Leao, a guy who I'm really excited. I think he could be like the star of the World Cup, much more so than even Cristiano Ronaldo, his Portugal teammate. And uh, every time I see Leao, he seems to get better and better and have a, a bigger influence. Young guy with a, a giant impact. And I also look at, you mentioned Italy. Juventus PSG is coming on Tuesday in Champions League. And I think that could be a good barometer because it's a Juventus home game of where sort of Juve is. And at the same time, we get news. We're recording this Monday afternoon in the pregame press conference Allegri saying that Pogba is going to have surgery and may not be back until January, which is kind of a bombshell. We didn't think he was going to be out that long. And that could include then, obviously, the World Cup that he would miss with France. And also has me wondering if there's any connection to this extortion attempt with Pogba and his brother and the witch doctor. Supposedly, this is all reports, but it was in the keep um, that a he, the extortion was related to knowledge that Pogba had enlisted a, a what's the best are, way are, are, you, are, are, are you are you losing the will to live talking about this story like I do because it, like this is one this is one me. of those news story where like I just from the from the moment it began I was like I don't think I'm gonna have the energy to follow this one who enlisted a witch doctor to put some sort of curse on Kylian Mbappe his French national team teammate and then reports in the keep that Mbappe's people were in wait and see mode to see if there was any evidence of it. And if that was the case, he was willing to ask the French national team to not include Pogba on the national team squad for the World Cup. And now maybe this is just, okay, he's going to be out till January. <laughs> yeah, I mean, out till January is, is a huge one. I mean, Paul Pogba 
for as much as he was criticized at Manchester United, is a very important player in the French national team. It was very good for them in their campaign to win the World Cup in Russia in 2018. This is a key player in a World Cup winning team. And if he's not fit and available, then I think it kind of completely changes the dynamic for France, who already without N'Golo Kante, at least for the moment, Injury doubt's always a question with N'Golo Kante because um, he just doesn't have a great record of staying fit. And so I, I do think that this is a very important, you know, news story for the French national team. I imagine now meniscus, we don't know because to, in, in my mind, that's like a six to eight week injury and that would have him back in time for the World Cup. But uh, reports seem to suggest that he could be out for even longer than that. So uh, I, I think this is a really huge one. But since you're mentioning Juventus, I do think it's worth discussing how poor they've been going forward this season. They're 12th in Serie A in XG. Like They are not creating chances. They are not scoring a ton of goals. They've only scored seven, albeit conceded two. They're very strong defensively. But I do think this Paris Saint-Germain game could be a bit like, if Juve are going to have any chance in it, I think they're going to have to do it in a very ugly fashion. Well, there was a kind of a weird comment a few days ago from Allegri, basically acting like this wasn't that important of a game to, for them to win a home game against PSG to kick off Champions League. We were like, what? What's up with that? Right, especially, especially when so much of the emphasis for Juve has been about eventually getting over the line and winning Champions League. Like this is the competition that they brought in Maurizio Sarri for, that the whole project around Andrea Pirlo was based on, that bringing Ronaldo was for. So unless they've completely shifted focus at, at Juventus and just want to go back to winning league titles again. Uh, I, I do think that this is a, a, a really big deal for them. So one last thing I want to mention here before we get to MLS is the amazing stat that four of the last five World Cup champions on the men's side have failed to get out of the group stage in the subsequent World Cup. That's crazy, but I, I think it's fascinating. And I think France is on the clock. I, I really do. And and I realize that their actual World Cup group isn't the hardest, but I didn't think Germany's World Cup group was the hardest in 2018, and they finished dead last in it. Yeah, and it, it's always it's always surprising. It's always surprising whenever it happens. I remember, um, was it in, in the Brazil World Cup, there was that group where where Costa Rica was like this crazy upstart. And and you look at them, you go, how in the hell did they get out of that group? And it's England, always- Italy, and Uruguay were in that group. Right, right, exactly. And and you look at the group that surrounds France and you go, how in the world are they going to not get out of this group? They have Australia, Denmark, and Tunisia. That should be, you know, nine points from nine, easy job done. But it just never seems to be that simple. There's always that one group where the favorites- don't perform to their level. There's one quote minnow that surprises everyone that has seven points by the end of you going, how the hell did that happen? And you're right. I, I would not be terribly surprised given all the all the negative press that surrounds France at the moment. France seems to be like 2006, 2010 France right now. Uh, and Most I, definitely I 2010. Think, yeah. Yeah, 2010. Yeah, in terms of the drama. Uh, but I, I think that they're kind of back in that stage again. So let's talk a little MLS to end things up here. The playoff race is in full swing. And the highlight of the weekend probably is Chicharito Hernandez failed Panenka at the death that could have given the LA Galaxy a win over Kansas City, a much needed win. Instead, his Panenka is saved and LA finds itself three points out of the playoffs. 
Yeah, it's a huge moment because if they win the game, they move on to 41 points. They're a point off of Portland and rail Salt Lake with a game in hand on Salt Lake and two games in hand on Portland. I still think they're in a decent position, but games in hand are just that until you put the points on the board. Four of their last six are away from home, and the Galaxy are kind of on the brink of missing the playoffs Yet again, which would be a huge development given the amount of spending that they've done. I do think the the Ricky Bush addition has been uh, really good for them. Uh, he has been really creative, scored a wonder goal uh, in, in their most recent road trip. But this feels like one you absolutely have to have at home against Sporting Kansas City, who I will say, give them credit. There were there were times where they looked completely down and out. They've had a decent run here uh, in, in these last couple weeks, uh, have Sporting Kansas City. But yeah, I mean, in terms of you go for the Panenka, if you don't, if the goalkeeper just stands there, that's a really bad look. And it, Chicharito had a terrible look on his face afterwards. And it's just it, to do it when you've already had the comeback effort, when you've already gotten to two-two. If you just whack it in the corner, you win the you win the game, you get three points, and you're on your way to potentially getting into the playoff places on national TV. It was just such a tough look for Chicharito. And you're talking about LA Galaxy being in danger of missing the playoffs. There's a couple other MLS teams that we're not used to seeing miss on a regular basis, at least until maybe the last year or two. But like big spending teams, Toronto, Atlanta, even Seattle, the current CONCACAF champion in real trouble now of missing the MLS playoffs. Yeah, I think the Seattle one is stunning because, as you mentioned, they won the CONCACAF Champions League. They've had probably... A few too many injuries. Um, I, I think that losing João Paulo midfield was huge, but then losing Obed Vargas as well was really tough. They've been struggling to find a rhythm between having defensive balance and attacking threat, particularly from fullback areas. And I think that Seattle is now in a position where I think I think they're pretty close to out. They're six points off the pace. Uh, against Portland and against Real Salt Lake. There's games in hand situation there. They only have five games left. They're six points off Portland. That's a very difficult turnaround to try and execute uh, down the end of the season. They got a much-needed win over Houston at the weekend, but I just don't think the table is shaking out their way. I think Portland is playing really well right now. Real Salt Lake are never going to drop that level of results. I honestly think that a rivalry match that they played in Portland a couple weeks ago, which Portland won. They did the double over Seattle, was probably the final nail in the coffin of this Seattle Sounders MLS season. It's still an immensely successful season, but it's come short of expectations. I think they might have a low-key rebuilding job to do at the end of it because some of their DPs are coming towards the end. Uh, some of their you know higher paid but not non-DP players in Morris and Roldan are coming close to needing contract extensions. Other teams in the league might want to give them DP deals. So I do think there's kind of an interesting job on there for Garth Lagerway, which, of course, that presumes that he stays, which he might not uh, because he is at the end of his uh, his term this year. He gets voted on by the fans. It'll get voted on by the fans, but it does leave his contract open. I do find that interesting, and we'll see sort of how reasonable Seattle Sounders fans are when they make that vote, right? Because if I were them, I would say, look, you won the CONCACAF title, and honestly, that's a huge trophy that no MLS team had done in the league era of that tournament. And yes, the the regular season has been really disappointing, but if you're going to vote out Garth Lagerway because of that, that would be absolutely crazy to me. I think he's the best... GM in the league. He's been that for a really long time. He has the trophies to prove it. 
But there's also the backdrop of might he be in line for Atlanta? Might he be interested in that? Might he be interested in something else? And so I, I, I will watch that with curiosity. Yeah, Chicago is another one uh, that, that was mentioned for him as well, given his previous with that club. But yeah, I mean, I think if you're, you know, even, yeah, Atlanta, certainly, because I mean, that would be a president position, uh, which I mean, obviously, he's got an elevated role in Seattle, but you could really shape a lot of things in Atlanta. And, you know, with the resources that you're given there, you're basically not backed by any other club like you are backed at Atlanta United. And for, you know, right now, they're fourth bottom of the Eastern Conference in Atlanta United, which is not where they should be. Um, it's it's certainly one where he could be given huge credit for a turnaround there if he's able to do so, which doesn't even really seem that hard. I do think we should mention the other team uh, that you discussed in the preamble in terms of teams that could be up against it to make the playoffs. I think Toronto losing at home to Montreal, that might yeah. be it for them. They're right now four points off with a game played more than every other team that they're in contention with, they're going to have to leap both Miami and Cincinnati, who have two games in hand on Toronto. They're going to have to get behind beyond either New England or Columbus. Columbus, who's got two games in hand on them. I think they had to win yesterday. They were 2-0 up after seven minutes. They were <laughs> cruising. And then Montreal, who I think are probably having... I mean, look, it's a Canadian team. They don't get in as much press. Philadelphia is getting all the press right now because of how well they're playing and their scoring margins in games. They're very much a supporter shield contender with how well they're playing, which was not thought to be the case uh, probably even three weeks ago, but they're crushing teams. But I, I do think that Montreal is having a brilliant season. Toronto, though, they have these moments where they play really well and their Italian stars look great and they seem to be on the score sheet after every game, but they gave up four against Montreal. They gave up two to the Galaxy. They gave up two to Miami. They gave up two to New England. They gave up three to Nashville. This is not the team from a defensive point of view that was going to be rock solid and, and get Toronto over the line. I think some of their holes are being exposed here, and they're probably looking towards next year. If they had Champions League football next year, it would certainly be a lot more fun and engaging, but they didn't win the Canadian Championship. Vancouver did. And so I do think that next year is a season of huge expectations for Toronto FC. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think there's going to be... We'll see if they can find a way to get in this... Uh, this playoffs, but there's going to be a lot of pressure on Bob Bradley heading into next season if they don't, just due to how much money's been spent. Uh, and to be honest, the Italians have delivered, at least the guys up front, uh, Insignia Bernardeschi. I mean, like it seems like they score a goal almost every game. Uh, and yet the solidity, the defending just hasn't been there recently for Toronto, which I, I know has to be disappointing. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to me. I mean, you talk about some of these teams and underperforming on on what's being spent. Carlos Bocanegra, I'm still amazed, got a contract extension last year. I, I don't quite know how that happened, but it did. And now with Darren Eels gone, I think he's in a in a really precarious spot uh, in terms of forget how much time he has left on his contract. This is a, an Atlanta team that just is not performing. Yeah, I, and I, I do sort of, the, the the prerequisite with them always is they had really important players get injured very early in the season, and they've been, they've tried to fill holes, but it just hasn't been enough. I think at a certain point, they just ran out of money because they probably would have gotten a, a, a you know another or perhaps better center back in, another better or another central midfield player in, given the absences of Ozzy Alonso, Miles Robinson, even you know maybe improved a bit more at goalkeeper when they had uh, Rocco Rios Novo come in to play for the rest of the season. But I think Gonzalo Pineda is also under huge amounts of pressure because 
It seems like we're 29, 30 games into the season. They haven't completely found the best formula to go and win games. Some of their star players haven't been brilliant. I think they actually are starting to develop a little bit of a Joseph Martinez problem, which you would not have anticipated uh, given what's left on his contract, given that he just seems to have not recovered fully from injury. It's been two years now where it hasn't looked like peak and prime Joseph. And that's a huge concern given how he sort of is that club. He's the one figure that's been there from the beginning and was one of MLS's best ever strikers pacing. He still was the fastest to 100 league goals. He still sets uh, set all kinds of benchmarks, but it just isn't coming off of them this year. And it hasn't come off of them now. This is kind of their, and so I guess we can say second and a half season. I, no, right. no, it is. It's their third full season third. where they haven't looked they haven't hit their ceiling. They finished fifth in the East last year, but they haven't hit their ceiling, I think, for a little while now. I think that uh, can certainly be there. There's a lot of questions to be asked around that club. Good stuff, Chris. Thank you, as always, my friend. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can also now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.